So that brings us to the second half of the book. This is where the direction changes completely. The first 15 chapters were concerned with how does one become clean so they can enter the presence of God and worship Him? That was the main point. So how do I make sure that I'm clean before I enter the tabernacle? Or if I'm entering the tabernacle in an unclean state, what must I do in washings and sacrifices to make myself clean so that I can remain in there for worship? So that's the whole first part of the the Leviticus. The Leviticus then climaxes in the Day of Atonement where they put all that into action and they actually cleanse the tabernacle and themselves of their sins for the previous year so that they may actually enter the tabernacle. From this point on, the entire nation is clean. Now as individuals, if I become unclean, then I'm required to go in and do those sacrificial systems. So one day you have to go in because your sins have built up to a point where you can't handle it anymore in your conscience, and you go in. A couple of days later, it's me. A couple of days later, it's you. So on an individual basis, we all kind of have our little mini day of atonement to on an individual basis. And then eventually next year, on the first of Tishri, as an entire corporate nation, we come together again for a corporate day of atonement to care of those sins. So nationally, every year, and then on individual le- level, you would just we'd be flowing in and out just depending on what's going on in our life. So that all climaxes the Day of Atonement. Then in chapter 17 through 27, this is dealing with now once I leave the tabernacle sufficiently clean and connected to God through rest and worship, because I've obeyed the Sabbath, which is ceasing from the things that get in the way for me spending time with God so that I can remember his amazingness and his blessings, so that I can be thankful, because thankfulness is the key to obedience. Then I go back out in the world. How do I morally conduct myself in a clean way? What does it mean now to remain clean through moral behavior? What does it mean for me to represent God as his image in an unclean world? And that's what this second half book is going to deal with, is what does it mean to live a clean life morally so that I can accurately reflect who God is? Because remember, the ultimate goal of our life is to be his image. That my thoughts, my words, my deeds, my parenting, my marriage, they all tell the truth about who God is. And that's what Leviticus is about. The first thing that God deals with is chapter 17. Chapter 17 is kind of a a pivot, a transition from the Day of Atonement into this new section. So chapter 17 deals with now regulations when it comes to sacrifices. Now, this is kind of a repeat of the first six chapters, or first seven chapters. The first seven chapters, though, focus mostly on what the priest was supposed to do. Okay, priests. You make sure when they come in that they do this and you do this in the right order so that everything will be done. Now, in chapter 17, God is focusing on the people. What the people are more likely to mess up before they see the priests or on their own or that kind of stuff. So now he comes back to the sacrifices again and he begins to deal with what should you make sure that you don't do wrong before you see the priests. So this is drawing those two sections together. 
One of the first things that God, in verses 1 through 9, chapter 17, Yahweh strictly forbids sacrifices made outside the tabernacle without the presence of the priests. So the priest is not with you every single moment of your life. So he knows that when you bring the animal in, he's the one that blesses the animal. You lay the sins on, you slice the throat, but he's responsible for actually pouring the blood out and, and putting the animal on the altar. But he can't be in your life. You might be tempted to think, ah, oh, that tabernacle is kind of far away. I don't really have time to go there. So I'll just, I'm the head of my house. So I'll kind of do it on my own. Now, this is exactly what Saul did. Saul's like, I waited seven days for you, Samuel, and you didn't show up, so I decided I was going to make the sacrifice on my own. Now, there's a whole lot more going on there when you get to Samuel, but that's kind of the gist. And the reality is that... um. So God is saying you are never, ever, ever, ever allowed to sacrifice any kind of animal outside the tabernacle, period. All sacrifices must be done inside the tabernacle. And you're not allowed to eat any animal that has not been sacrificed. Which means if you want a hamburger from McDonald's, you've got to take it to the tabernacle and kill it first. Now, that's a very strict rule that God has put in place. In fact, if you do a sacrifice outside, then you're going to be cut off from the Abrahamic covenant. Now, why is this so serious? Because there's so many other pagan altars outside the tabernacle. And if you're going to find an altar to do this on, it most likely will probably be an altar built by a pagan. And you're like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. That's kind of like walking in a Buddhist temple and praying to Jesus. It's just not going to look good, and it's not going to be right. And I'm not saying you can't pray while you're in a Buddhist temple. I mean, I've been in Buddhist temples. I've been in Hindu temples, and God is not, like, frowning down on me if I say a little prayer. Or, like, when I've talked to the Buddhist guy, and I'm like, okay, God, help me. i got to talk to this guy. I'm not saying that. But I'm like, if you go there on a regular basis, in a, in a sense of worship kind of a sense. Okay, you can pray anywhere. Don't feel ever guilty praying anywhere. Anywhere. Even the darkest place is exactly where God wants you to pray. But if you're going there on a regular basis to worship God, then it's kind of hard to explain that you're really truly worshiping Jesus. And so that's kind of the, the closest thing that we would have today of why God takes this so seriously, that you're not allowed to go anywhere else. The reason, he says, is first the animal was an offering to Yahweh for their sins, so it must be done in his presence. That's his physical presence. And second, this is where the pagan offerings were made. And he specifically mentions that there's a goat demon out there. And if you go out in the wilderness, you might be tempted to sacrifice to the goat demon. So he completely forbids this altogether. Now later, God is going to change this. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, God is going to say, if you want to eat meat, you can kill the animal outside the tabernacle. Because the reality is, once we get into Israel, Israel is about the size of New Jersey. And even though New Jersey is small, if I want to have meat for my family because a huge party is coming or a festival, it's kind of hard to walk all the way across New Jersey to the tabernacle just so I can prepare dinner for my family and come all the way back. So in that sense, God says, you can, you can kill an animal and you can eat it without taking it to the tabernacle once you get into the promised land. But still, you're never allowed to sacrifice for the purpose of atoning for sin and a sense of worship outside the tabernacle. And God will actually command them to remove all the high places. And the high places just means altars that were built on hills. 
because most of the time altars were built on hills because the hill was a little bit closer to the gods. And so you didn't really find altars in the valleys. And so he commanded them to remove all the high places. This is why this is significant, because Israel never did that. And that's why when you get to the kings at the end, when it gets to Hezekiah, it says that Hezekiah was righteous before God. He even removed all the high places. Why is that a big deal? Because in over 700 years, he was the first guy that ever did it. <laughs> ever did it. But unfortunately, his son rebuilt them all. So, but his grandson re- removed them all again. So, but the good thing about his grand, his son is his son was a horrible, evil man, but ended up repenting and coming to God at the end of his life. So, but that's a whole other lesson. So, the removing the high places are important. So, you're never, ever, 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 ever allowed to sacrifice outside the tabernacle. Then, once again, Yahweh forbids the drinking of blood. This is in chapter seventeen, ten through fourteen. He absolutely forbids the drinking of blood. And we've already talked about that, so go back to the discussion in chapter 7 of Leviticus um, to see why that's so important. And the introduction to the entire book that we did in the first lesson. We move into the next section, chapter 18 through 20. Chapter 18 through 20 is the conduct of Yahweh's people. How are you to morally behave? Now, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly because a lot of this for us today as Christians is duh. So I'm mostly going to deal with, once again, with the implications of things. The first thing you must understand is there is to be absolutely no wickedness in the life of God's people. God's people are called to look morally and act and think and speak morally different than everybody else. If you look like somebody else, it should be only because they've learned from you. Like we live in a culture today where there's a lot of non-believers out there who are pretty decent people in a Judeo-Christian morality kind of a sense. But it's only because Christianity has had a powerful effect in our culture. You go back in the ancient world, it was hard to find anybody that you would morally agree with. And we kind of talked about that a little bit with the Roman Empire and that kind of stuff. If you, were, if you acted the way that Christians did today, you would stand out drastically in the ancient world. Um, but there's a, and I don't know what you think about Dinesh D'Souza, if you know him. I don't always agree with some of the political things that he's saying. Um, Dinesh D'Souza, he's an Indian guy that became a Christian. And he has become very vocally outspoken about the Democrats which he's got a lot of good things, but when it comes to politics, I typically don't... I got a problem with everybody, and probably everybody's got a problem with me. <laughs> politics is... I hate politics, but... So if you're a really big political person, you're like, ah, I don't know about him. He did write... That doesn't mean everything he says is wrong. That's true of most people. He did write a book called What's So Great About Christianity. And what's cool about this book is he's a little pro-evolution, and I really have a hard time with that. But once again... Just because he says something you don't agree with, you don't throw him out completely. I mean, you just, you, you, it's everybody. And what he does is a good job of showing that how, like, in the Roman world, everybody bestiality. Everybody was okay with homosexuality. Everybody liked child sacrifice. Everybody was okay with pedophilia. Why do we live in a culture that even most Americans think pedophilia is wrong and that never used to exist? And he basically makes the point because Christianity has had such a powerful influence that Christianity changed the culture so powerfully that even if you never became a Christian, 
you still kind of have a Christian kind of idea. Now, one of my heroes is a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer was a C.S. Lewis kind of a guy of the 1970s and 60s during the, the whole hippie movement. And he lived in Scotland, and he wore knickers. But, um, and he was a brilliant thinker. And he basically defined that there's two kinds of Christianity, Christianity and true Christianity. And what he meant by that was that in our culture, at least back then, before the hippie movement really kind of wiped everything out, um, he made the point that everybody pretty much is Christian in our Western culture in the sense that they have been so thoroughly changed by Christian morality that they have, without even realizing that they have a Christian sense of right and wrong. And then there's the true Christian who truly is a Christian through the blood of Jesus Christ has been atoned for. And that's what he was saying is that C.S. Um, Francis Schaeffer was saying, then how shall we live? He did a series called Then How Shall We Live? And one of his disciples, Chuck Colson, then kind of went on and, and made his own series of How Then Shall We Live? And he basically made the point that um, if we're really truly living the way that we're supposed to, morally and righteous, that we will have such a powerful influence in the world around us that even the, if they never accept Christ, we will transform the culture and they will adopt a Judeo-Christian morality without even knowing it. Because they will see that your life is so good and hopeful and loving and, and healthy that they will just copy you because they want that subconsciously over multiple generations. And that's what kind of Dinesh D'Souza is saying with what's so great about Christianity. Well, it changed the world, even though not everybody became Christian. But as the Christian begins to look more and more like the culture, and we start listening to the same music, and we start watching the same movies, completely unfiltered. Okay, I'm not saying you should never watch any movies, or, but the unfiltered, we don't think about what we're watching anymore. It used to be that Christians would do a lot of that same stuff, but they would become the commentators on it. We don't commentate on our entertainment anymore. Not as a whole, not as a whole group. And then if you don't commentate on it, then it begins to affect you without you even knowing it. And then we begin to act like them and our divorce rate and all that kind of stuff becomes the same as the world. And then the world begins to go into darkness, which we're starting to see. And so that's what God's kind of trying to say here is that there can be no wickedness in your culture because you're supposed to be the influence on the world around you. The world should look at you and say, wow, you don't die of plagues. You actually have healthy marriages and families. You actually like enjoy being with your family. Like, wow, you're not like all jacked up from your worship service. I kind of want that. And that's what this is all about, is how you're supposed to conduct yourself. Now, the first thing he starts with is your sexual morality and your marriages. For God, sexual purity is incredibly important because sex is the greatest gift that God has given us in the sense of a man and woman coming together on a metaphysical level. And I, I have no explanation for how sex works in binding two people in a metaphysical way. I just have no idea how to explain that. Um, but there is something that if you're truly emotionally connecting with each other, then that physical act is going to connect you in a deeper way. If you're not emotionally connecting to each other, then it just becomes lust, for lack of a better. I mean, I know it can go way deeper into the psychology and that kind of. But in some levels, if you can make it just about a physical action, 
But if you really truly are connecting to somebody, then that sexual action becomes an even deeper kind of a connection that's hard to explain. And because of that, you're binding yourself to somebody, soul to soul, body to body. And that is the closest thing that you're ever going to get to your covenant with God, of being completely unified with him and mind, body, and soul and all that kind of stuff and belonging to him. And we also know that because that is the greater the gift, the more destructive it becomes when it is abused. The reason why humans are so destructive is because we're the greatest thing that God created in creation. And when we sin, we become the most destructive thing that there is. And you have to understand that God did not say like, oh, I'll give you sex. And you're like, oh my gosh, but sex has destroyed so many things. It's only because it's so good and so from God that when it gets abused, it becomes just as powerful in its destructive nature as it was in its good nature. Because sex is powerful no matter what. And you can't expect sex to not be powerful anymore when you're abusing it. It doesn't lose its power. It just becomes destructive rather than unifying. And that's why God focuses so much on sex and marriages and proper relationships. And the other reason is is that um, everybody can tell you, every historian will tell you that the way a culture treats sex is usually its downfall. The minute a culture begins to corporately abuse and be okay with the way that sex is conducted, a culture pretty much collapses. There's really been no culture that's ever recovered from the way they deal with sex. And if you've ever read like the fall, the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire, there was about eight signs that every culture has met before they've collapsed. And we've met all eight signs. So, and I'm not a prophet, and I'm not saying we're coming in, and I believe that God can do anything and bring revivals, and I'm not saying it's the end of the world and God, America is going to cease to exist, but in a powerful, influential sense, yeah, maybe. The reality is God is really focusing here because this is our relationship with each other.